gisteren zat ik hier met een vriend. We hadden het over toen ik jou verliet. Al best lang geleden, toch te lang gewacht. We hadden het over je ziel en je kracht. Hoe jij dat zo zag dan, hoe jij je gedroeg. Nee, voor jou was er nooit iemand genoeg. Jij was het speciaals, deed nog nooit iets verkeerd. Met gesloten ogen bekeek ik het weer. Hoe ik toen een meisje was, jij een vreselijke droom. Al mezelf het gezegd en mezelf het beloofd. Had het afgesloten, weg met verdriet. En ik zou het vergeten, maar het lukt me weer niet. Want de pijn die blijft, het zit dieper dan dat. Ik zou een moord doen, zodat ik je woorden vergat. Want dat klopt gevoel dat toen is ontstaan. Dat gaat nooit meer weg en dat heb jij gedaan. Gisteren kwam er een besef. Jij duwde iedereen ver van me weg. En dingen die jij tegen me zei. Dat vrienden me haten, maar jij hield van mij. Je uitspraken waren zo goed als gestoord. Vooral met een slok op, dan draaide ik je door. Nu makkelijk praten had weg moeten gaan. Maar graag had ik nog zoveel anders gedaan. Hoe ik toen een meisje was, bij een vreselijke droom. Had mezelf het gezegd en mezelf het beloofd. Had het afgesloten, weg met verdriet. En ik zou het vergeten, maar het lukt me weer niet. Want de pijn die blijft, het zit dieper dan dat. Ik zou een moord doen, zodat ik niet woorden vergat. Want dat klote gevoel dat toen is ontstaan, dat gaat nooit meer weg. En wat heb jij gedaan? Mezelf het gezegd en mezelf het beloofd Had het afgesloten, weg met verdriet En ik zou het vergeten, maar het lukt me weer niet Want de pijn die blijft, het zit dieper dan dat Ik zou een moord doen, zodat ik je woorden vergat Want dat klote gevoel dat toen is ontstaan Dat gaat nooit meer weg en dat heb jij gedaan Hello, hello, and welcome to Student Radio Maastricht on RTV Maastricht. Thanks for RTV Maastricht for hosting us. We're here, and I'm the host for today, Sophia, and I have two exciting guests with me. On the one hand, I have Michaela Vanore. She is a researcher at UNOMERIT. Hello, Michaela. Hello, good evening. It's great to have you here. And then also we have Salome, who Hi. studies with me. <laughs> and she's from the organization Maastricht Goes to Calais. Hello, Salome. Hi, thanks for having me. I hope you're all doing well. And we're going to discuss the topic refugees and migration in Europe today. And on the one hand, we have an academic perspective with Michaela. And on the other hand, a more activist organization NGO perspective with Salome. And yeah, we'll try to understand this problem from the perspective of migrants. So not from a policy perspective, but rather understand the migration trajectory of a migrant. And I have a question for you, Michaela. Why are you so passionate about migration studies? Uh, you asked the golden question, you know that? So I would say, I have to start on a personal note. I, I am myself an immigrant. I came to the Netherlands when I was quite young, when I was in my early 20s, and it was such a great adventure. And then as I started to go further into my academic trajectory, I realized actually that the thing I wanted to study, initially sustainability, kind of went out the window because I realized that one of the biggest issues that was facing st sustainability was actually population movements. So I started to look more at, for example, ur urban settlement. 
and understanding that it was the bad governance, the bad policy around migration management that was contributing to so many other problems. So I think if I had to summarize it very quickly, I would say it's the cross-cutting nature of migration. So many of us are migrants in some way or another. And it also builds up our societies. Like in Maastricht, we're quite close, of course, to Eindhoven, which is one of the great tech hubs of, let's say, Western Europe. It's also known as the smartest city in the world. And part of the reason it's the smartest city in the world is because it has so many patents. So it's the highest number of patents per capita. And you might question, why is that? Why does it have so many patents per capita? Part of it is the circulation of international knowledge, of people who come to study, to work, to contribute to the development of tech in a, a city that really thrives on this kind of new, innovative approach and cultural exchange. So I think as well that it's really a central theme in actually human development, in economic development. And it's just something that I see, again, in everything that we do. Wow, that's a really interesting perspective on migration as like an academic um, discipline. And yeah, we're today going to talk about exactly this topic. So we're go first going to go to the pre-migration stage, so understand why migrants migrate. Then we're going to do the transit. And in the end, we're going to talk about settlements, so about Calais, and then also involve Salo with Maastricht Goes to Calais. And now we first of all have a song for you, Sans Papier, by Max Herre and Yoni. And it's about exactly this topic, migrants, and about stateless people. Enjoy. <laughs> Auf dem Boden, Wedding Hinterhaus Die paar Sachen packen, hastig waschen Und Leben aus karierten Plastiktaschen Bin so müde vom Lügen, wem soll ich trauen? Wem kann mir kein Fehler erlauben? Ich geh nie bei Rot, trag ein saures Hemd Sag Ja und Arm, mit saurem Akzent Bleib nicht stehen, halt mich raus Will kein Ärger, schau geradeaus Und trotzdem find ich keinen Platz Und wir verschwinden über Nacht Oh Gott weiß, wie lange es noch so geht Ich hab keinen Namen, nenn mich Sans Papier Sans Papier Sans Papier Sans Papier Ich bin im Punkt im Meer, nenn mich Sans Papier Mann im Vortransit, wir machen was es gibt Schlaf die Stirn am Vordersitz, mach die Doppelschicht Für die Hälfte, Western Union Internetcafé, sag ihnen, dass es mir gut geht Die alte Heimat, nur Pixel am Computer Das Lachen meiner Nächte, das Gesicht meines Bruders Er will nachkommen, trägt mein Öseltrikot Und ich will sie ihm nicht nehmen, seine schöne Illusion Und mein Vater fängt wieder an von früher Erzählt von den Hotels, die er gebaut hat Montags früh von Tanja rüber, dass uns die alte Welt hier noch gebraucht hat. Sie sagen, es gäbe keinen Platz mehr und sie holen uns über Nacht. Und Noga weiß, wie lange es noch so geht. Ich hab keinen Namen, nenn mich Sans Papier. Sans Papier! Ich würde so gern mit dir ausgehen, ist nur zu riskant Bei jeder Sirene zieht sich mir alles zusammen Wird deine Leute gern treffen, und was kann ich erzählen? Wie soll ich mich vorstellen? Mein Name ist Sans Papier Sans Papier, ungeklärt, eingespenst, ein Punkt im Meer Du hast mich gesehen, wir haben uns verliebt Und dabei kurz vergessen, dass es mich nicht gibt Und ich wollte nicht trinken, nur was soll ich tun? Du sagst, gib uns ne Chance, noch meine Chance warst du Und ich war Sans Papier, ich war unsichtbar Blinder Passagier in Handschellen, Lufthansagen Sie kamen über Nacht Sie sagten, mach kein Krach Und oh Gott weiß, wann wir uns wiedersehen Du kennst meinen Namen, ich 
sans papier. This was Sans Papier by Max Herre, and you're here to listen to Student Radio Maastricht, hosted by RTV Maastricht. And we're here to discuss migration. We're first going to do pre-migration. So why do people migrate? And yeah, this question goes to Michaela Vanore. She's a researcher at United Nations University Merit in Maastricht, and she studies migration. And I want to ask you, what is a migrant? Yeah, thanks. That's a really great question. I'm going to, of course, put on my academic hat and give you the definition that is, is generally used by international organizations. So, of course, you now have the International Organization for Migration, which is, let's say, the UN Migration Agency. And the IOM distinguishes basically two kinds of migrants or two types of migration, the long term and the short term. A long term migrant is somebody who lives in a country outside of their place of original birth or of citizenship for longer than 12 months consecutively. But a short term migrant is somebody who is gone, let's say, between three months and, and one year. So normally three months is the threshold. And we would say that somebody is not a migrant if they are not Uh, gone for more than three months or three or more months consecutively. But of course, this cuts out a huge chunk of human mobility. We can look all around us. We can see our colleagues who live in Belgium, work in the Netherlands, and send their kids to school in Germany, for example. This is exactly an, a, an example of typical European cross-border migration, but we're not typically looking at people who are gone for long periods of time. It's mobility that is just integrated into people's everyday lived experiences. So I think... Uh, Sorry, not to, not to drag on, but I think there's this a bit difference between the international definitions that are used and then the real experiences that people have. And I would say that um, we have a bit of a challenge both in media and in academia in problematizing migration and migrants so much. Throughout most of human history, mobility across some kind of distance was quite normal, either for seeking marriage partners or for moving somewhere else to follow cattle or whatsoever. It's quite a normal part of human experience. And where it becomes problematized and where we start wanting to define it is when we have people crossing administrative borders, particularly international ones. Thank you, Michaela, for this answer. And I would also like to ask my question to Salome, um, but more of the like, because you work also like with migrants who are more classified as migrants by yeah, popular discourses in Maastricht goes to Calais. So what do you think? Like, who is a migrant and why do these people migrate with you, like regarding your experience from this organization? Um, yeah, I mean, for us, we look more like more specifically at refugees, so a certain type of migrants and They migrate usually for reasons um, that are not very voluntary. Um, so, yeah, in, in the case of Calais, the refugees in Calais, um, it's, yeah, I would say more of a political migration or environmental uh, migration. So they move to escape, like, uh, persecution or war, or they also move um, to, yeah, escape natural disasters. Um, and, yeah... The, actually, most of them didn't, or most of the refugees, that's maybe a misconception, they don't necessarily want to go to Europe. Uh, like most refugees in the world, I think 86%, they actually reside in a neighboring country and they um, don't have this ultimate goal to come to the EU. But it seems to us here in Europe, it seems like it, because of also media and politics who frame it this way. Um, and yeah, in the case of Calais um, and refugees wanting to go to the UK, that's also quite a big misconception that um, people think so many people want to go to the UK, but it's actually not the truth at all. Um, so, for example, UK in 2021 had the 17th largest intake uh, of uh, asylum seekers uh, per head of population. And only six asylum applications for every 10,000 people. So it's really nothing. 
And countries like Sweden and Hungary, which have both smaller populations than the UK, have taken several times more refugees than the UK. So the whole discourse actually should ha should change a bit on that and be more appropriate to reality. Definitely, that's a good point, because like when we talk about Calais, we also talk about the UK mainly, because these migrants, they want to go there. And we're going to continue talking about Calais in the next section, where it comes to transit migration. But now we're going to have another song, which is Letter to the Free by Common and Bilal. trees we hung from barren souls heroic songs unsung forgive them father they know this not as undone tied with the rope that my grandmother died pride of the pilgrims affect lives of millions the slave days separating fathers from children institution ain't just a building but a method of having black and brown bodies filled them we ain't seen as human beings with feelings will the u.s ever be us lord willing for now we know the new jim crow the stop search and arrest stop souls police and policies patrol philosophies of control a crew hand take it home we let go to free them so we can free us america's moment to come to jesus for freedom to ring black bodies being lost in the american dream blood of black bean a pastoral scene slavery still alive check amendment 13 not whips and chains are subliminal instead of nigger they use the word criminal sweet land of liberty incarcerated country shot me with your ray gun and now you want to trump me prison is a business america's the company investing in injustice fear and long suffering We staring in the face of hate again The same hate they say will make America great again No consolation prize for the dehumanized For America to rise It's a matter of black lives And we gon' free them so we can free us America's moment to come to Jesus Welcome back to Student Radio Maastricht, hosted by RTV Maastricht. I'm your host for today, Sophia, and I'm here with Michaela and with Salome. Hi. 
And we're talking about migration. And we just discussed the pre, like kind of the pre-migration stage where people decide that they want to migrate. But now we're kind of in this transit stage. So kind of in this in-between phase of like set before settlement, but also like after deciding to migrate. And like this phase is especially like often kind of affected by framing by news media because we always like see people who migrate in the news. Um, but like I think they're always like framed in a very specific way. So what do you see, Salome, and what would you change about that? Um, yeah, it's good that you mentioned it because we just talked about it in the break. It's a really interesting topic and also something that frustrates me a lot, which is also a reason why I'm doing what I'm doing. Um, I think the media and politics often frame uh, or yeah, make up certain problems or make them more extreme than they might actually are. For example, like I just said before, um, uh, that there's such a big discourse about refugees and asylum seekers in the UK and illegal migrants, the word illegal, which makes it so criminalized. Um, and while, while there's often it not even a reason to frame it this way, like with the UK where there are so little people claiming asylum and wanting to go there or um, people being framed as illegal that are just yeah, fleeing from a war, for example, which is actually outrageous. And Michaela, why is this framing of migrants as being illegal so yeah, dangerous from an academic perspective? Yeah, that's a difficult question. I think my gut reaction is to say part of the problem is that it's very reductionist. When you call somebody illegal, when you use this term, I think it's used very often as an excuse not to perform basic obligations. So, for example, Salome now mentioned that if you have somebody who's fleeing from persecution or war or one of the any other grounds on which somebody could claim asylum, by the 51 convention, they should have the right to do so. They should not face this dilemma of being criminalized. And I think that by using the word illegal, it's very easy to dismiss the very real human rights protection claims and needs that people might have. I think this ties a little bit in general into the... Um, the, the way we use the term illegal in general. So I think in migration studies uh, among scholarship, we generally talk about irregular migration to make this distinction between, uh, or to make, let's say, less ambiguous what the term really implies. So I think with illegality, you immediately think of somebody who has committed a criminal offense, for example. But in many cases, crossing a border without having proper documentation isn't a criminal offense, it's an administrative one. But there's also many different pathways through which somebody can become irregular. So, for example, somebody can very legally be inside a country. They may have legally crossed a border. They have, um, let's say, complied with all of the administrative and regulatory things that they are supposed to do. But in the course of being somewhere, they might have an expiration of a permit or the grounds for claiming residence may change and then they become irregular. And I think it's actually quite important to draw out these differences. We're not facing a mass influx of people who are seeking to illegally enter with the borders of a country. There's something to be said about the kind of language that we use, the discourse in exactly, as you say, the frames around irregularity and illegality, if you want to call it that way. There's a scholar who talks a lot about the way we use metaphorical language. We talk about waves of humanity cra uh, crashing against Europe's shores. And it draws up this image, right, of water that is slowly deteriorating the integrity of something. And I think that this is a really harmful way of framing populations because, again, it's very uh, diminishing. It ignores the fact that it's not one massive monolithic wave of people who all have the same intentions, the same rights and the same needs. So I think that uh, what I would really love to see, and which I'm really happy to see actually uh, more civil society organizations bring up, is our need to be accurate. It's not that we have to humanize everything, but we do have to fundamentally recognize that every statistics about a statistic rather about migration is an individual human being. But even beyond the humanity part, I think we have to be more accurate in who we are talking about and what it means for policy. Yeah, I think you bring up really good points. And the thing is that those discourses are so prominent that they shape the public opinion. And this is really problematic if the public opinion actually is not accurate. Or even also then it makes it, if, if these people are just um, described as, for example, illegal migrants, how can a person then like get a personal link to the whole migration and refugee topic in within Europe, for example, how can a person then get personally involved and uh, wants to 
yeah, be an activist, for example, and want to change something if they don't even attach any emotion to a topic. Yes, exactly. And like so often, like what we see in politics is that migrants are instrumentalized, like they're kind of like a political weapon, basically. So that's really good points that you raised that like we have to really pay attention of our language and which language you use and how we frame migration. So yeah, what would you change about that? So Salome, for example, like do you have any ideas of how we can like have a more positive connotation to migration and like kind of yeah, frame this process that is so natural and that has always happened in a more positive way to get more people involved? Yeah, I think first of all, it's important to make it more personal, to personalize also the, and to Yeah, to have an emphasis on the individual people behind numbers and behind certain connotations. And also, yeah, to try to bring up emotions in people so that the discourse is phrased in a way that people could actually put themselves in the shoes of others. For example, yeah, in, in this case or in our case uh, of the organization Refugees, we try to, um, yeah, the way that we talk about refugees, especially in Calais, should make people aware and want to get involved and want to to do something to change something yeah exactly and Michaela you did a lot of research also about the well-being of migrants and specifically migrant families what do you think is the impact of this language that is used on migrants like how does it affect their well-being that they're basically portrayed as waves or as a crisis Yeah, my intuition, of course, I should say this isn't something that I studied directly. I was looking much more so at the effects of long-term separation on families. And part of this is maybe part of this discourse. So I think that um, the bigger impact isn't necessarily on individuals themselves, but it's about the impact on policy. I think policy is very quick to be justified by this kind of language use. And I think going back a little bit to the whole issue of framing, I can imagine that when you frame people as illegal, it almost makes it sound like they're perpetrators of many greater ills and that they are wanting to actively abuse the systems that they're going into. Whereas I think for many migrants, that's not at all the intention. They find themselves sometimes accidentally or inadvertently in these situations. I myself was irregularly in the Netherlands for almost a year because my employer failed to renew my residence permit. Whoa. So I think this is a really good example. It's not that I came into the country thinking, you know what, I'm going to abuse the heck out of this situation. But I also have an easy system, right? I mean, I'm, I come from a very powerful nationality. I know what I'm studying. I know what I'm doing. And I found myself in this trap. So how can your average person who is trying to navigate these different legal environments make heads or tails of it? But I think then going back to the, the effect of framing on individual migrants themselves, I think that what we see in a lot of places, and I'm reflecting a bit on uh, the US in particular, somebody is going to be very hesitant to reach out to services that they might need access to, whether that's medical care, for example, or police assistance, if they know that they're going to be perceived as criminal or if they have the feeling that they are going to be less eligible for help or sympathy or empathy because of the, the types of language that has been used to describe them. I think that it also heightens your own sense of danger and uncertainty if you feel so much that you are an outsider in a system and that you are so unwelcome. I can imagine that that makes it quite difficult actually to want to navigate and learn how to navigate the structures in a place as you should. Yes, thanks. That's like a really good thought um, that yeah, we really pay attention to that. And I also wanted to ask like kind of you, Michaela, about this limited autonomy that is there by experience and kind of this limit in decision making and freedom, basically, like we heard in the song that we just had. Um, like how does this affect migrants and which consequences are there in this limited autonomy? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a very good question. I think I would like to say that there are both positives and negatives, and this can sound like a really weird way to approach it, but I think that we have to recognize that uncertainty has its positive elements too. In all of our lives, we, we grow through the stress that we encounter. We become more resilient when we encounter things that are outside of our immediate control. But I think that it's useful maybe to distinguish what we mean by limited autonomy or limited efficacy. So we often talk about self-efficacy is what a person needs to actually realize the goals they set for themselves. And when we're unable to mobilize the right resources or we don't have the information to navigate structures, of course, that can have a big effect on our sense of self-efficacy, on whether we can achieve things. And you can imagine that it has big effects on your own sense of motivation. Certainly, it can relate to things like anxiety and depression. It can also relate to behavior changes. It's not uncommon to see somebody who has lost control over their own sense of, of purpose, their own ability to navigate their lives 
it's not uncommon to see them adopting values and moral stances that under normal circumstances would be completely abhorrent to them because it's what they need to do to regain control over their own lives. But then you can flip it around and say that somebody who has limited autonomy becomes incredibly creative. And perhaps you recognize it of your own lives, that when you faced situations of extreme stress, you, you bend. You don't always break. You learn how to navigate within the very narrow confines of what your choices are. And we talk a lot, actually, about this this concept that's called post-traumatic growth. So it can be that if somebody encounters something that's particularly traumatic, and I should say that this usually develops when you have um, a situation of prolonged exposure to a potential trauma, something where you don't feel that at that moment you can take yourself out and you can bring yourself into a position of, of safety and control again, the brain kind of goes into a different mode. And self... Um, Self-preservation is, of course, what human beings want the most, and it's what our brains will push us to do. I mean, this goes a little bit into the brain science part, but we have what's basically called the mammalian brain and the reptilian brain. The reptilian brain is basically lower in the, the, the skull. It goes towards the spine. And the reptilian brain regulates our first responses. It's the thing that tells us, do I fight, do I fight, do I flee, and so on. And it's our reptilian brains that are the first ones dealing with trauma. But that means that we can't always rationalize what our reptilian brains are telling us to do. So when we have situations of extreme trauma, it's our reptilian brains that take over, and it basically just guides us to safety. But then our mammal brains, the higher parts of our brain, only kick in later on when we're in positions of relative safety where we can unlock that vault of all of the traumas that we've experienced and learn how to process them. So I think that what often happens for migrants who have situations of limited autonomy or control, that when they are in positions of safety, they can start to open up that vault and process things. They also build up different systems of support for themselves. They can translate that trauma into sources of strength and sources of resilience. But it's not something that happens uh, immediately or naturally. And you can actually have pol uh, policy systems and support systems that help people do it. And that's also why I would advocate for um, better recognition of the differentiated needs of migrants. So I think it's wrong to say that every migrant has experienced trauma, of course. But I think we can also recognize that there's a portion of the population that absolutely has and that probably requires more support systems to help them cope. Yes, definitely. And that's a really good point that you brought up, trauma. And like when we speak of Calais, then there are a lot of traumatized people there because they chose this very hazardous and dangerous route of migration through, for example, the channel. And that's what I want to ask you, Salome. Like, why do they these displaced people there in Calais choose this hazardous way and like also kind of like have this opt or like, yeah, are traumatized by that possibly? Um, I guess like one of the reasons could be the, the Dublin agreement so that, um, yeah, a, an, a person um, the first has to seek asylum in the first country that they arrive in. And yeah, that would mean that, um, yeah, most of the asylum seekers would be in the Southern European countries. And we know that this is not the case. And many people, when they want to go somewhere else, they come illegally and cross those other countries. And um, yeah, that's why there's no legal route to go to the UK. They can claim asylum once they're there, but obviously before there's no way to do it. That's why they have to somehow get there illegally. And um, yeah, there's different ways they can, for example, Uh, hide in certain vehicles like trains or trucks but this is getting more and more difficult now also with Brexit and more controls and also with Corona there were way more controls in the channel in the um, uh, tunnel and yeah the most uh, frequent way to go to the UK are like small boats or ferries and they take the Strait of Dover which is the where the Channel is the narrowest, it's 34 kilometers, which is still very much. And yeah, they, they leave from Calais and then they go to Dover and usually they do it during the night um, when they're, yeah, when, when they're less, least seen. Um, and yeah, they, they risk their lives. It uh, often doesn't work because they are, for example, seen by the police and then brought back or something happens with the boat and they have to get rescued and usually people there try it every night yeah and like there are also always news popping up like that people really die on this way like between Calais and Dover that they are found dead so this is really sad and like 
such a hazardous and uncertain route and they risk their life just to get to the UK. And that's a question to Michaela, like why do maritime crossings as a channel for migration occur? Like we see that on the one hand in the channel, so from uh, France to the UK, but also in the Mediterranean. Yeah, I think the most straightforward explanation is that there's an absence of other credible, safe, legal routes. So I think that actually this connects exactly to what Salome was saying, that if you have a, a policy system that makes it extremely difficult for people to regularly make these crossings, they will choose the routes that they can, in in this case, maritime crossings. I think this is also definitely reflected in more recent policy discourses on migration and asylum. So, of course, after the 2016 refugee governance crisis, there was a big discussion among the UN, uh, UN culminating in what's called the GCM or the GCR, the Global Compact of Migration and the Global Compact on Refugees. And a key part of the Global Compacts is this phrase, safe and orderly migration. And the emphasis is really on creating credible legal channels that are accessible to people with many different types of motivations for movement. So as it is now since um, the 1970s, there's been a big restriction in the legal channels through which somebody can actually enter the uh, many European countries. So whereas labor channels would have been the most common in the 1970s and would have been actually quite accessible for many types of populations, now there are very few channels that actually support labor migration. So one of the default ways in which people now enter Europe more commonly is, for example, family reunification or family formation. But if you don't already have a strong network, And if you don't have information and you don't have resources, then it's quite difficult to use these narrow legal pathways into the countries. So then maritime crossings become a quite appealing approach because they're one of the only accessible ways that people can move. Thanks for this answer. This really explains a lot and kind of like also the intention. And the next song we're going to hear is from Calais to Dover or Calais to Dover by Bright Eyes. Enjoy. Under a microscope of apoplectic vision My face on a slideshow I look totally unhinged Forgot the Latin word the name for this condition Shut off a sick to get attention Now this winter got an excuse to not go home Out on the coast Flying away I heard a memory Your voice over the engine So full of remorse and apprehension Now that you're gone Now that I'm out here on my own It won't be long Till I have to 
This was Calais to Dover by Bright Eyes. And you're here listening to the Student Radio Maastricht, thankfully hosted by RTV Maastricht. And we just talked about migration, especially in Europe. And we're here with Salome from the Hi. organization Maastricht Goes to Calais and with Michaela, who is a migration researcher from Unumarit in Maastricht. Hello. And yeah, we're just talking about migration. We've just talked about maritime crossings and trauma. And like, there's just a lot of like pain that like goes on to the journey of many migrants, especially when like traveling and going through Europe. And we will ask ourselves in the next part of this yeah, Student Radio Maastricht episode, how we can become active and how we can improve the situation and livelihoods of migrants and of refugees. So yeah, like that's maybe a small teaser, Salome. What can we do? Um, first of all, get involved with Maastricht Goes to Cali. Um, and yeah, I think the best we can do um, is to raise awareness for the topic and to talk about it, to also complain, uh, to be very vocal about how politics uh, are handled in Europe and especially between France and the UK when it comes to Calais and the crossings uh, of the channel. So I think, yeah, we have to be as activist as we can and just, yeah, speak out, not just stand there and watch, I guess. Yes, that's really important. And Michaela, what do you think? Like, how can we raise more awareness for the situation of migrants, especially, like, for example, also in Calais, but in general in Europe? Yeah, I think now I have to put on my really dry academic hat. A bit the danger I see is that when we try to lend too much to positive frames, I think we run the risk of alienating the general population. It's something I've noticed within my own community. I live in a, a small village, not in Maastricht, a little bit further on, and I'm the only immigrant in my neighborhood. And I think that um, it's quite difficult for my neighbors to comprehend how violent some of the, the discussion about migration is. And I think if we try too much to talk about how we should all care about these issues, it becomes very quickly alienating to people for whom migration is actually not such a big part of their lives. I think for many of us, and I would say in particularly younger generations, mobility is so normal, right? I mean, we take for granted that we can be pretty much anywhere else in this world, particularly if you have an EU citizenship. It's so much part of our, our everyday lives that we think, yes, everybody should have this right. But I think for many parts of the population, it's not so normal. And I think that we can really risk alienating them by telling them you're not doing enough, you're not caring enough, you're not protecting enough. So I think that part of it is also being careful. I would also say that from um, I come from a school of governance and a policy school. So I think part of it, too, is that we as academics need to learn how to talk in a way that policy knows how to understand us. Like we have a critically huge problem in the sciences of speaking in jargon. I'm sure that some of our listeners are like, you've been doing that this whole time. <laughs> But I think that the point for me is that we have to make ourselves more accessible. I know that It's difficult to bring evidence into policy because policy is much as about ideology as it is about evidence. But I think that we do need to make sure that what we bring as evidence is actually understandable and it's actionable. I know that our tendency as academics is to answer everything with, well, it depends because it does depend. Often our answers really matter on the context that you're speaking of. But for somebody who wants to put that into action, it depends isn't very satisfactory. They don't know what to do with it. So I think that we have to be better at communicating about what is the, the yeah, so-called right thing to do, given the parameters that we have within particular policy environments. So there is a common task between you two as academics and activists to communicate the message and to make people understand better and maybe in an easy way and in an accessible and inclusive way of what the problem is and what we can do about it. Am I right, Masado? Yeah, I think for sure uh, you, you said the right things. I also think um, just to add one thing, um, well, Michaela is uh, focusing on migration and we're focusing specifically on uh, yeah, refugees. So I think it's very important also that we, like you said, adapt our discourse um, also to the topic that we're actually talking about. So I think it really depends whether you're talking about regular migrants and that you normalize migration in a way that yeah, the migrants are just an, as an active part of society as people that have been living there forever and the discourse around refugees in Europe is obviously a very different one so we have to really know which discourse we have to use for the different topics. 
guests to always differentiate. That's true. And this was it for the first part of Student Radio Maastricht. In the next part, we're going to talk about yeah how we can become more active. And thanks for Atelier Maastricht for hosting this episode. And we're now going to listen to the song Telling Stories by Tracy Chapman because this is really important to just tell stories and tell individual stories about migration. There is fiction in the space between The lines on your page of memories Write it down but it doesn't mean You're not just telling stories You're listening to Student Radio Maastricht, hosted by RTV Maastricht, and we're currently talking about European migration. And this topic is really important because sometimes we just see numbers. We don't see people and the stories behind this. And this song that we just heard by Tracy Chapman really says that like we should tell stories, like we should listen to stories and we should tell stories, especially about migration, because like as Michaela and Salome just told us from like both activism and academic perspective, that like The way we perceive migration is so often shaped by what we hear in the news, but we don't see the individuals. So tune in for the next episode and for the next part from 19 to 20 to understand better what we can actually do and how we can listen. 
And now the news. Charge bells, let him ring, ring, ring. You're the queen, I'll be the king, king, king. 